Let us give our attention now to what God says as we read in Isaiah chapter 52. And the passage that we'll hear preached this morning is verse 1 to verse 12. It's found on page 613 in the Pew Bibles. Page 613, Isaiah chapter 52, beginning at verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, O Jerusalem, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? The rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. This is God's word. The best of authors knows how to keep you in suspense. They know how to say just enough to raise your interest while leaving you wanting for more. Isaiah does that very clearly in the passage we're going to look at this morning, although you could say that throughout this book, as he's been speaking and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author of Isaiah, the ultimate author himself has been giving you bits of information here and there, building a profile picture of the coming Messiah. And as he has leaked information to us, as he has prepared us, it has become tantalizing as we begin to wonder how all of this is going to shake out in the end. As we've looked at Isaiah from the beginning, if I can just remind us of where we've come uh, Isaiah has 
painted a picture of a great future in which not only the believing people of God, Zion, as he increasingly describes them, not only the believing people of God related to Israel constitute Zion, but more and more foreigners and the nations round about Gentiles are drawn in to become worshippers of God. One of the features of that future is that people know God from the least to the greatest, from the youngest to the oldest, they know God. The one who will bring in that future in the early chapters of Isaiah is a figure, a figure who has divine honors on his head, divine titles to his name. He comes as a son, as a child. He's born of a virgin. He he enters into the sphere of this world. He comes to reign as a king. He comes with divine authority to be the divine king. And by the end of the first section of Isaiah, that's what we are expecting. We are expecting the arrival of God's king. We get to chapter 40, and there is an announcement of the arrival of this great king, and we discover that, in fact, it is the arrival of God himself. God is the king who is going to come. The virgin-born son with divine honors is, in fact, God visiting his people. And no sooner have we come to terms with this divine kingly figure then Isaiah then introduces us to this figure when he comes, his arrival, what he looks like. And we're confronted by the most astounding contrast as the this, this son who is given, this king who will come, this divine figure who will arrive is described by the prophet as a servant as the servant, as the servant of the Lord. And he has become the main character. This one who's coming with divine honors, God's king, who comes as a servant into the world, has become the theme of this section of Isaiah, where the prophet has left behind to a large degree his credentialing as he has given his credentials to Israel as he has predicted the, uh, the fall of the Assyrian uh, the, the Assyrian Israelite alliance to the north as he has described the rise and fall of Assyria the rise and fall of Babylon the rise of Persia and a return from exile he's described all of those things in advance establishing his credibility and his credentials as a prophet of God. But now his focus, his focus really has increasingly shifted towards more fundamental, more theological, more essential issues. And in this section that we have look, are going to look at this morning, that really begins in chapter 51, verse 17, and runs to verse 12 and 52, is the prelude to the greatest part of the prophecy of Isaiah. To some many people, the only part they know, and that is Isaiah 53. But it is an essential preparation for Isaiah 53. Because in these verses, there's a call for us to believe the good news that has been being preached, really, since chapter 40. The good news 
of what God is going to do through his son's servant, Jesus. And although we will not be told here how it will happen, that's being kept aside until we get to chapter 53. Chapter 53 holds a solution. You're not supposed to read ahead, by the way. Wait so that you get the full impact of it when you do it. Don't be like these people that read the last chapter of a book first. That's a waste, spoils the whole thing. Don't do that. Wait for it. We are tantalizingly told in these verses what it is that the servant will accomplish. Though in 53 we're told how he accomplishes it. So what will God's son servant, whom we know as Jesus, what will he accomplish? And what we discover here is that what was announced in chapter 40, the good news that the warfare between God and his people is over, their sin is pardoned, and God will give to them double for all their sin. That's the good news that was preached. Promises and reassurances have been made and given. Most recently in Isaiah, the promise of a new Eden paradise restored. The promise of a new exodus. That is a great release from bondage. This time not bondage from Egypt, but bondage in sin. And those images of that renewed paradise and that great exodus, that great deliverance and salvation are in our minds and in the mind of the writer and author Isaiah as we come to this section which is addressed to the church. It is addressed to us. It is addressed to the believing people of God. And there are three main addresses. They, they're quite easy to identify. Chapter 51, 17. Wake yourself. It's what I have to say to the nine o'clock lot every Sunday. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. Chapter 52, verse 1. Awake, awake. They need it again and again. That's for the 11 o'clock lot. And then... Chapter 52, verse 11, for the end of the evening service. Depart, depart, as you send them out uh, again. So those, that, that's just so as you recognize the main, the main stepping stones of this passage. Time to wake up. Time to dress up. Time to step up. First of all, it's time to wake up. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Now we have noticed increasingly throughout this book that there are indicators and signs and references to the great Jewish festival of Passover. That theme has recurred again and again and here it comes again with the reference to the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath is one of the themes that you find throughout the Bible. It's perhaps not what you wanted to hear on a Sunday morning, but, but there it is. It comes from God and is about God and his word. And the Exodus is the story of how the wrath of God was averted. You remember God sends his angel of judgment, the angel of death, to Egypt. He says that the firstborn in every home in Egypt will die. And in the story of Egypt, you remember that the angel of death comes and visits every home. But there is a, a word of 
caution, a word of good news given to those who will take a lamb and the lamb will be killed, the lamb's blood will be with sprinkle on the doorposts and the lintels of the house. And when the angel of the Lord sees the lamb's blood, he will pass over that home and the wrath will be averted. Well, that's what's in mind here when you read this phrase. God is coming to his people and he's saying, wake yourself, wake yourself. Because the wrath of God, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. What is he doing? He's saying to the people of God, he's saying to us this morning, what is the major issue that is facing the world today? As we sit in church this morning, what is the major issue that we are facing in the world today? And the answer is, it is not ISIS. Nor is it climate change. Nor is it even evil in the hearts of men and women. In every generation, it seems, God permits there to be an exhibition of the evil that is in the hearts of men and women. In one generation, it was the Armenian genocide in Turkey. In another generation, it was the Holocaust. In another generation, it was, it was the awful atrocities of Mao Zedong. Today, it is the atrocities of ISIS. Tomorrow, who knows? But in every generation, it seems, representing Europe and the, Eurasian, and the Anglo-Saxon populations, if you will, of the world, we had that in the 20th century. Now it's the Middle East. In every part of the world and in every area of the world, there are these exhibitions from time to time of the latent evil that is in the human heart. Just when you were feeling comfortable with humanity, just as you were believing the evolutionist lie of onward progression, onward and upward and ever onward, just then you are reminded that there is an evil latent in the hearts of men and women. But that isn't the big problem this morning. The greatest problem facing humanity is stated by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The big problem is a problem that lies upon all of humanity. Christian, non-Christian, believer, pagan. As the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesians, writing to these Ephesian believers and reminding them that once they were dead in the trespasses and sins in which they once walked and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of humanity. So here is this word, you see, right nestled in the middle of the revelation that God is giving through Isaiah of the coming work of the servant, the servant slash king who's coming, nestled right in the middle of why he has come into the world. There is addressed to us God's dealing with this primary problem. Do you know the things that happened to Israel in the past 
happen for our understanding. When you see Israel, as you do regularly in her history, coming under the wrath of God and supremely in the, in the exile into Babylon when their city is destroyed and the temple is flattened and the people are deported and all is lost. There you have an example of what it means to be under the wrath of God. It is a terrible thing to be under the wrath of God. Amen. When it came to Israel, it came because they deserved it. They were handed, do you notice in verse 17, they were handed the cup of wrath by God himself from the hand of the Lord. It was their wage. It was their due. It was what they deserved, just as it is our wage, our due, our desert to have the wrath of God handled, handed towards us. It is a reminder to us this morning, just as Paul's words to the Ephesians are a reminder, that it is what we deserve. We may be believers, but once we were children of wrath, like the rest of humanity this morning, the chosen people are not chosen because they are sinless, but like the rest of humanity, they were under the condemnation of God. They have the wrath of God hanging over them. God speaks to his people through Isaiah, and he reminds them in verse 17, that they were under the wrath of God. And when they were under the wrath of God, they experienced total loss. There is none to guide her. Among all the sons she has born, there is none to take her by the hand. In other words, no one to comfort, no one to guide. That's what it means to be in the world under the wrath of God. It means to be tottering here and there like so many drunks in a fog, as you see in verse 17. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. What does it look like to be under the wrath of God? We look at the nations of the world and the leaders of the nations of our world and we see them very often staggering along like so many drunks in a fog knowing not which way to go, which decision to make, which turn to take without guides, without leadership, without knowing because to be under the wrath of God means to be without hope and without God in the world, which means you don't have access to the wisdom of God. And when you don't have access to the wisdom of God, you act the fool. You behave the fool. You act as if you are drunk. And do you see what he says in verses 19 to 20? That they have no one to console them. Just the devastation, destruction, famine, and sword. No one to comfort them. Because their sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. Caught in a net. Terrified. Trapped. Unable to help themselves. This is what it means to be in the world under the wrath of God. It means to be without hope and without God in the world. And for all its pomp and show, for all its power and, and, and strength, all the nations of the world are under the wrath of God. It is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness 
of men. And so the prophet speaks to the people of God and reminds them, this was your state. This is your state by nature. But I want you to notice the good news here. I've emphasized the bad news so you get the good news. It comes through loud and clear in verses 21 to 23. Here is God who comes to his people and he wakes them. You know, I, I, I very often like to have a movie title for a sermon that I preached. It just didn't come to me quick enough. It came this morning as I was praying, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, it wasn't because I thought of Sandra Bullock at the time, but it, I wasn't. But the title came dashing in while you were sleeping. It's a great movie for Christmas, by the way. While you were sleeping. That's what this guy... Anyway, you can see the movie for yourself. That would be a great title for this sermon because, you see, God comes to these people and he says to them, wake up, wake up, while you were sleeping. Guess what? Let's see. Let's see how it shakes out for a moment. Look at verse 21. While you were sleeping... God draws attention to himself as the sovereign. You see that word, capital L, uppercase L, lowercase O-R-D. That translates Adonai. It means sovereign, the king, the king of kings. Your king, your sovereign. The Lord, all uppercase. Yahweh, that is the covenant. The covenant Lord, who is in a relationship with his people, who loves his people, who's, who has promised himself to his people, who acts to rescue them. Your God, God who is committed to you and to your welfare, the God of absolute justice and integrity, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Your God who acts for you, who takes your part, who acts as an advocate for you. In Scotland, a defense counsel is called an advocate. He pleads your case. He goes into court for you. He speaks for you. He acts for you in your defense. This God, while you were sleeping has done something remarkable for you. That's the message of this whole passage. Behold, he says, Tara, look! I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, and the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. Now that he's wakened them by his mighty voice, he says to them, while you were sleeping... While you were unconscious, while you were out of it, without your help, without your action, without your works, without any effort on your part, I did what needed to be done. I have dealt with the wrath question. I have resolved the wrath problem. And he comforts them. He comforts them with his word. I've taken the wrath from you. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors. I will judge the world, but I have pardoned you. You are not condemned. Believe me, rest on my word. It is a word of grace. This is God's word, God's message to his people. While you were sleeping, when you weren't even conscious to do anything for yourself, 
I did all of this for you. I have resolved the wrath question. Now he leaves that up in the air. We want to know how did he do it? How did you do it? He wants us to ask that question. Isaiah does. The answer is in chapter 53, but we're going to leave that just now. We don't want you to get too excited. So instead of going to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, I'll take you to Peter. Peter in uh, one of his... Uh, was I going to take you to Peter? Yes, I was. And uh, I just can't find... Where, where Peter's gone. No, I'm not taking you to Peter. I'm taking you to Paul. I got Peter and Paul mixed up there uh, because, uh, anyway, I, the morning sermon's still in my mind. They got a different one than you. R Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Picking up these very themes. See if you can see the themes from Isaiah 51 in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God does the right thing, you see. Here is, the, here is God saying that he does the right thing. He goes into court. He pleads the cause of his people. Who is he to condemn? Paul goes on to say, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us, pleading our cause. And so the New Testament takes us back to this passage and says, who is being spoken about there? Who is the Lord who pleads our cause, the cause of his people? Who is the one who has dealt with the wrath of God so that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ? It is Christ himself who is our advocate, who pleads our cause and intercedes for us before the throne of God above. I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Time to wake up to the news, the good news. That condemnation is over because of the work God has done through his son, servant, Jesus. But secondly, it's time to dress up. Look at chapter 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. He's just told us that while they were sleeping, God has acted to deal with his wrath. Now he's telling us that while they were sleeping, he has prepared beautiful garments for them. A provision has been made for them. Not only that judgment has gone, but that the means is being provided for them to live and enjoy working and serving God in God's holy temple. That provision is described as getting dressed. There's a repetition. Do you notice a repetition of the words here? Put on strength. Put on your beautiful garments. Put on. Put on. And the language here comes out of Exodus 28. Where the high priest's garments are described as being for glory and beauty. 
It had always been the intention to make the people of Israel into a royal priesthood, kings and priests to God. But that had never been accomplished. The sacrificial system never achieved that. But here the signal is being made that that goal has been reached or will be reached in the future. That goal has been achieved in the future. A work will be done that makes all of God's people, fits all of God's people to wear these glorious garments, the garments of a priest. That is someone who is able to operate and live inside the temple of God. Not simply excluded from the temple or excluded from Jerusalem or excluded from God's presence altogether because of the wrath of God, but brought near brought near in fact by wearing these beautiful garments no more will come into you the circum uncircumcised and the unclean so he says shake yourself arise be seated O Jerusalem loose the bonds from your neck realize what it is you have wake up smell the coffee know what you have God has provided you the means of being in his presence now verses 1 and 2 describe it as if it's already happened verses 3 and 4 recap on what was necessary for that to happen or verses 3 to 6 actually recap on what was necessary here's what verse 3 says for thus says the Lord you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money now you see the language of redemption is the language God uses to stake his claim on his people. Yes, they were under judgment, but they remained his elect. They remained his people. He reserved the right, no matter what anybody else did to them, to redeem them, to recover the property. And the word redemption means to pay a price. It involves the payment of a price. You cannot have redemption without the payment of a price. But do you see what is being taught, taught us here in verse 3? There will be no change, exchange of money involved in this. And if there is no money changing hands, the question that's raised is, what price must be paid for the redemption of God's people? What is the ransom price? Now, of course, we want to short-circuit the answer and go straight to Matthew where, or Mark where Jesus says that the Son of Man came to give his life as the ransom. Here's where Peter kicks in. You were wondering where he would kick in. Peter, referring to this whole section, including 53, puts it like this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, not with money, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Now the prophet leaves that unsaid at this point. But he does underline for us, look at verse 4, he underlines for us who will do this work. It is the Lord God, Adonai, the sovereign, the one who intervened 
as the next of kin who acted on behalf of his own family, his own people, when they were threatened in Egypt. And then again, when they were threatened by the Assyrians, Isaiah speaking from his own time frame here, by the way, you notice, he's speaking to the people of his day, where Assyria was still the enemy, still the opposition. Babylon lies way in the future, Persia even further in the future. He's talking to the people of his own day who understood that Egypt had been the big problem back in the day. Assyria was the big problem in their day, and God would rescue them. God would redeem them. God would bring them out. And here he says that your God has seen your need. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, what have we here? Here's a divine soliloquy. Here we have God speaking to himself. What have I here, declares the Lord? Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing... Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day, my name is despised. And here's God's solution. It's a two-pronged solution. Therefore, my people shall know my name, part one. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. Now, you need to notice the solution. God is going to act in a future day. On that future day, which the context suggests would be the day of the servant. On that future day, two things will change. Profound things. They're absolutely vital in the, the, in the, built into the very heart of this passage. There are two therefores. Therefore... There will be a new conviction about what the name, in quotes, of the Lord means. There will be new understanding of what the name, in quotes, of the Lord involves. There will be new content put into the name of the Lord. That's part one. Part two. Therefore, in this coming event... It will be the Lord himself who will be present both in word and in person. The Hebrew puts it like this. Therefore in that day that I am he who speaks, behold me. God is going to appear on that day. He's going to be present in person. And he will be the one who will say, Tara, it's me, I'm here. Behold, behold me, I am. And it's left up in the air. On that day, God will come in person and God will speak in person to his people. You see, when you come to the New Testament, you find God coming, Emmanuel, Christmas, God with us. That doesn't come out of the blue. It's been prepared for by the rich teaching of Isaiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When God comes in person, he goes able to say, for example, and this, this blends so perfectly with what we're studying in the Sunday evenings from John's Gospel, 
on that day, he, the Lord, Jesus is able to say to his disciples, I, I, I've been here and you know me. And, and anyone who's seen me has seen the Father and you have both seen and heard. You've seen and heard. He's here in person. And he's here in word. When Jesus comes onto the scene. Now it's that then that launches us into this beautiful and wonderful piece of work in verse 7. You thought George Frederick Handel had written this, but no, he got it from the Bible. How beautiful in the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The apostle Paul regarded that as referring, first of all, to the apostles who came to announce the good news message, that the war was over. The good news message, meaning that the bad news had been resolved, the wrath had been removed. The good news of salvation, that is total rescue from every cord and tie and bondage. And this is more than just civic peace or material and physical salvation. We are now right in the theological realm of peace with God and wrath removed. We're right in the realm of a new status for God's people as kings and priests, which you and I have now today because we are now a kingdom of priests to serve our God. As Peter says in 1 Peter, we are a kingdom of priests, as John says in the book of Revelation. We're operating in the realm not only of peace with God and this new status, but in the realm of redemption, verse 3, of without money exchanging hands. We're operating in the realm of a revelation of the Lord himself, in word and in person, verse 6. And it's in that context that the apostles go out with this great good news, publishing peace, peace with God, publishing news of happiness, joy for all the nations of the world, saying and publishing salvation, that is this divine rescue from sin and wrath and hell, and saying to the nations, to Zion and to the nations, as we'll see, your God reigns. The God who has saved us reigns. In Romans chapter 10, the apostle applies these words to the process by which the gospel spreads throughout the world. It's the hearing of the word of Christ preached that opens the possibility of people believing in him. There's this direct line of continuity between what God is doing through Isaiah as he preaches the gospel. This is the great gospel according to Isaiah. And our business today of preaching the gospel with Christ as the key, Christ as the center, Christ as the subject. And the preaching provokes a response, the voice of your watchman. The prophets and apostles, they lift their voice together. They sing for joy, eye to eye. That is in total agreement. With absolute clarity and unity, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Those people who were there in Luke's gospel in those early chapters of Luke who were waiting for the comfort, the comfort of God for his people, 
When they saw the little infant baby, they realized, here is the one who has brought good news to Zion. Here is the Lord visiting, visiting his people. What an amazing description this is of the preaching of the gospel and the announcement of the gospel. The Lord has bared his holy arm. The active strength and personal action of God is made bare in a human figure before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth see through the preaching of the gospel as, they, as it points to this act of God through his servant Jesus. All the ends of the earth see the salvation of our God. So God's word to the people is, Waken yourself. While you were sleeping, I dealt with the major problem humanity faces, the wrath of God. Now that you're awake, get dressed. Put on your beautiful garments. Be what you are. Be the priests and kings that I have made you, men and women, brothers and sisters. Be what you are. And rejoice in it and make it known. Make it known to the nations. But thirdly, he says to them, it's time for you to step up. For these words are part and parcel of the message of the gospel. Depart, depart, go out from here. Touch no unseen thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Here in this statement, we're called to step up to our position in the world and separate ourselves from everything that mars or threatens our fellowship with God. If we're a kingdom of priests to serve God, if that's our primary goal in life, if we have been so clothed in righteousness that God has begun his work within us, then we begin at that point the journey out of the world. Did you know this? Did you know that the moment you came to Christ, you started the journey out of this world to glory? You heard the call of Moses. When he said to the children of Israel, it's time for us to depart. And they left Egypt and they moved towards the promised land. When you came to Christ, you heard Christ call on you to depart out of this world. And you started the journey from here to there, from now to then, from earth to glory. That is what the Christian life is. That's what we call progressive sanctification. It's the changing of the believer. It's the increasing shift of the believer's priorities and orientation from this worldliness to that worldliness. This is what we are called to be and to do. That's why the Apostle Paul draws on this very language in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 17, when he's talking to the believers there at Philippi who were very tied to this world. And he urges them. He says, here you are, you're priests. That means what? You serve in the temple of God. What agreement has the temple of God with idolatry for we are the temple of the living God a little later on he says to them you believers you church plural you are the body of Christ your church your body is the temple that is your church is the temple of the living God and 
the temple of the living God, people who belong to that temple, are increasingly to be shifting themselves out from under the world. Jesus says, they are not of the world. And there will come a day, as the book of Revelation teaches us, when the great command is given to those who live in Babylon, that is the representative in the book of Revelation of the world system in which we live. The word comes to us as it comes to them in that great book. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So here you have this great picture of the Christian life. Free from wrath, dressed in glorious robes as priests and kings, all ready to God, having begun our journey out of this world. We are to step up to the plate, nail our colors to the mast, show ourselves to be decided followers of King Jesus. And to do that secure in the guarding and sustaining power of God. Look at verse 12. It's not a call to be panicky. It's not a call to be scared. Don't go out in haste, nor shall you go out in flight. You can go forward in this business of living the Christian life with calm security because your covenant Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard as he did with Israel going through the wilderness wanderings. He was both before them and after them. He was, he was their great guide and their great defender. And so you and I go out into this world this week having taken another step in that journey from here to there, from earth to glory, as we go out into that journey this week, we go not alone, not on our own. We go protected with our great guide and our great defense. Remember what was said earlier about the people of the world? They have no one to guide them and they have no one to protect them. The world is staggering around like drunks in a fog. But we, the people of God, freed from wrath, made kings and priests, have started the journey from this world to that city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Zion, our heavenly destination. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the prayer of our Lord Jesus that covers every one of our lives as believers until we wake up in your presence to see you. When he prayed for us before he went to the cross, Father, keep them, that is, guard them from the evil one. We pray that for ourselves. We pray it for each other. We pray it for all the ransomed church of God that you would keep us until we see you face to face. In Jesus' strong name, amen.